Hi, my name's Andy Chamberlain, and this is the Creative Writer's Tool Belt, the podcast that gives you practical, accessible advice that you can apply straight away to your own writing. You can find out more at my website, andrewjchamberlain.com, where you'll also find out about the Creative Writer's Tool Belt handbook, which condenses all of the very best advice and insight from my expert guests and me in one place. I hope you enjoy this episode of the Creative Writer's Tool Belt podcast, and it's helpful to you on your writing journey. And welcome to episode 153 of the Creative Writer's Tool Belt and a very happy and blessed Christmas to you. And if you don't celebrate Christmas, if you're having a break at this time of year, I hope you have a good break. Now, this episode is a conversation with Hollywood script writer turned ad exec and YA author Greg Millman. And for anyone who doesn't know, YA stands for young adult, as in the writing genre. Greg has been on writing teams for documentaries, films and TV series, and more recently has worked with a number of global brands across a range of media and platforms. And Greg and I had a fun conversation about the process by which TV dramas get written, how that process relates to story arc. Uh, We talked about how to keep the lovers in a TV series apart and when to let them come together, how advertising works and how that might help us as writers with the characters we create, and also the power of editing. We also talked about the changing nature of YA writing, the importance of the book cover, and how complementary characters can enhance a story. So we covered a whole bunch of stuff. This was a really fun conversation. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here it is. Okay, well, Greg, welcome to the Creative Writers Tool Belt podcast. It's great to have you on. Uh, thank, thank you for having me on. It's an honor to be here. I want to start by asking you a question which I ask a lot of my guests. When you were a kid, what were the main cultural influences on you? And that could be film, TV, books, whatever. What are the things that, that stay in your memory from that time? Yeah, it would definitely be Saturday morning cartoons, which um, <laughs> <laughs> which means I'm dating myself because growing up when I was a kid, the only time you could really see cartoons was Saturday morning, sometimes in the afternoon after school. Um, but yeah, Saturday morning, there were superheroes, Schoolhouse Rock, you know, Bugs Bunny, Woody Woodpecker, kind of kind of the classics. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So that's that was definitely the biggest influence. And then in terms of the book that we're talking about, uh, the movie, the original Willy Wonka movie was uh, just something that got sort of seared into my mind yeah. as this weird, wonderful, you know, kind of dark fantasy about a, a, you know, a factory in a world of candy. Yeah, it kind yeah. of that that film was a sort of perfect balance of just slightly scary and fantastic with lots of color in it, wasn't it? It, it, it pitched I, all those things brilliantly. A hundred percent. I mean, the, there's certain scenes in it, like when they go through that weird tunnel, that yeah. totally frightening. And even the the opening and the setting of this family who was super poor, it was pretty dark and it really, really kind of stayed with me. But yeah, you're right. Then there was also the weird and wonderful and colorful and the Oompa Loompas. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So if we fast forward a little bit uh, now and the, the, yeah. think about the, the writing you've done on your over your career, you've done all kinds of different writing and, and all kinds of things with your career. Can you can you tell us briefly to start with about the different types of writing that you've done? Yeah, yeah, sure. So after college, well, I had a I had a brief career in academia. So then I was writing very dry, very boring <laughs> academic papers. Um, 
And I quickly burned out on that, and I, I jumped into producing for, for NBC. So I worked at MSNBC sure. and CNBC doing sort of political political talk shows. So there was a fair amount of politics and news producing and writing for that. Yes. And then, and then I moved out to Los Angeles to pursue screenwriting. Sure. Um, I intended to do movies. I actually fell into TV just because those were the sort of jobs that I ended up landing. So I did screenwriting um, for movies and TV as well. And then most recently, I jumped into advertising, which is anything from copywriting and taglines for posters to you know branded content, which could be a short video sponsored by a specific brand. Sure. And then the most recent thing is this middle grade novel that I wrote. So it's the that's the first novel that I tackled. Okay, so if we go back to the the kind of stuff that you did for MSNBC, where you were producing news, so that sounds like it was the kind of nonfiction chunk of your career. Yes. What what did you learn about handling nonfiction material from that experience? Well, I I learned I didn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> Why um, didn't you like it? What was it about it that you didn't like? Well. Yeah. So I actually I did like the world of news. Um, it, it felt like being in a movie where you're running around the building and racing to meet <laughs> deadlines and, you know, trying to get the show ready for air at whatever time, five o'clock, six o'clock. And um, so the, the energy and the excitement of producing something I actually did love. And okay. that stayed with me. I like creating content, but just the the darkness of cable news that they cover any, you know, traumatic incident, uh, mm. tragedy. Yeah. Um, you know, wars, accidents, plane crashes. It just it was very um, negative and you don't really have a choice. Whatever breaks that day you're you're covering. Yeah. So, yeah. So I kind of had started writing in my free time screen screenplays. So I just I felt the freedom and I think my sensibility is a little lighter <laughs> than the news. So, yeah. So that was the main thing I learned was I didn't like it. <laughs> it sounds like that was kind of beginning to kind of grate on your soul slightly. That kind of It was very much. Stuff. I actually had quit news right before 9/11 hit and I I was actually wow. packing to move to LA when the towers fell tragically, unfortunately. And uh yeah, it was I was just glad not to be a part of it yeah. because the, my friends who were still working in it said it was the most awful experience in their life to have to cover that every yeah. day yeah i can yeah. imagine so you you kind of escaped to la then so you headed west um I, I and did. uh you ended up working on some primetime network dramas now i wondered if you could give us just a, a flavor and an insight into what it's like to be part of the i presume you were in the writing team for these things what well, what's it like to write for these dramas how does that work yeah, it's it's definitely a very collaborative experience. I happen to work on mostly our dramas. They sure. there's just a big writing staff. So there's a showrunner who's the creator um, and the head writer, and then there's lower level writers of all you know levels. And yeah, it could be anywhere from six to twelve people on the show. And mm -hmm. generally speaking, when you're outlining an episode, they do it together in the room they call it breaking the story so you're you know all 10 of you are sitting in a room right. and you throw up an outline on the whiteboard and people are pitching ideas and uh the showrunner is sort of the final arbiter of, of what stays and what goes but generally it's collaborative and everybody gets to weigh in and if, if everybody likes something that becomes part of it sure um <clears throat> yeah and you, you outline it together and then generally that outline gets assigned to one writer and they go off and they write the episode on their own 
And then, but then they bring the episode, the script back and the group reads it and gives notes. And sometimes chunks of it get rewritten by different people. Um, so e- even when you're off writing on your own, you're still very much, you know, collaborating with the rest of the mm-hmm. team. Mm-hmm. That That is interesting though, that you, you said that somebody goes off and actually like the first draft, at least they write on their own because I was, one of yeah. the reasons why I wanted to ask this question was I was kind of, I'm in my mind, I was imagining you've got like eight or 10 of you on the, on sofas arguing about what a particular line would be in an episode. And it would, I, I couldn't understand how different creative people coming together, even with the best will could possibly have created an episode if they were all working on it together and they all had ideas and right. they all, you know, just the whole thing. But yeah. it sounds, but from what you've described, it sounds like, there's a collaborative piece at the beginning. Somebody goes away and they bring it back. They bring back something that's that's been written and people can then kick that around and, and tune it a bit. Yes. And then the other thing that's um, sort of key is that the the studio that's producing it and the network that's airing it, they, they read everything, outlines and scripts, and they give feedback. So at a certain point, what your fellow writers think isn't as important as what does the studio and the network think. So okay. uh, then the script goes to them. They give you notes. Then you come back and you, you try to figure them out on your own. If you can't go to the team for help, maybe how do I sure. solve this problem? That sure. you, yeah. Mm-hmm. So let's say if, if you had a, a script that you, your team, the team were happy with, and it kind of went upstairs, let's say, you know, went to uh, the people that are looking at those scripts, are they writers or is it, is it more a case of like, there's somebody very senior and basically if they don't like the way the story's going, whoever they are, whatever their background, they'll, that they have the sway on it. I think some of the uh, creative executives that give notes or, or, you know, and work in, in TV development, I think some were writers maybe who whatever just stopped writing and became a, an executive on that sure. side of it. Sure. Um, some, some might not be writers and they're just sort of creative people. You know, it, it just sort of depends on your attitude. A, a lot of people just always hate the notes they get from network executives, <laughs> you know, as a rule yeah. of thumb. I never really felt that way. I just, okay. I kind of felt, yeah, I kind of felt like if they were pointing something out, there something was bumping them. And it's probably the most valuable thing I learned from, from working on TV shows and, and in that context is that I might not agree with what they're saying uh, and their solution might be wrong, but you know, something is bumping them, you know, something. So it's like if there's a character and the character's uh, a scientist and they're coming up, you know, solving uh, why is there a wormhole that's sucking the entire world into it. And the network exec is like, ah, this character feels more like a lawyer. And you're like, the character can't be a lawyer. It's a scientist. It's a sci-fi movie. You're crazy. But something about the character that was presented to them doesn't feel right. And so maybe you didn't create the scientist yeah, in a way that makes yeah. them feel like, you know what I mean? So, yeah, no, I do um, know what you mean. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So there's, I feel like there's always a nugget of truth you can yeah. dig out, even if you don't agree necessarily with, it. and that's yeah. not always the case. I mean, sometimes it's just an opinion and you like a, and they like B and you have to kind of negotiate. Yeah. Okay, that is interesting. And I'm sure you're right. It's interesting to think that even if somebody comes, you know, a note comes back and you, you don't agree with them, there's probably something authentic under there somewhere, isn't there? There's there's something not quite right that you need to kind of dig at just to see what's going on. As you say, maybe your scientist yeah, does not... look like a lawyer. I don't know. 
Yeah. Or maybe they're maybe they're not speaking. Maybe the dialogue doesn't sound like a scientist, yeah. or maybe the yeah. backstory is right for a scientist. You know, it's like sure. It, that's why sometimes it's useful to get feedback from non-writers because they they may not know what how to fix something, but they're just a consumer or a viewer or a reader, yeah. and, they, and they know. I like this. I don't like this. This yeah. is working. This isn't yeah. working. You know. And then it's up to you. You're the writer. You know, we, in in the writers' room, they say WP writer's problem. Like, there's a problem here. You're no one can fix it but you. Good luck. <laughs> yeah. So it's like there, there's a huge something's missing here. Yeah. No one else knows what it is. WP. See you later. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You've got to yeah. dig up, dig yeah. it out, and sort it out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, um, yep. one of the other things that always intrigued me with. Um, with TV series, particularly ones that that kind of run for a while, and you can see, you can watch these TV series on on the big networks like Netflix and and people like that. And like the traditional story, there's like in a traditional story, there is a story arc. The story begins, there's some stuff, it ends. That's the arc. That's the way stories work. But if you have a successful drama that is ongoing, yeah, you you can't just do that, can you? You've got a your your arc never seems to you know it can't stop. And I've I've noticed with some programs I, I watch them I see I can almost feel the writers struggling with this tension between the natural arc of a story and this thing might go four five six series. Yeah, keep at it. Yep. So how do, how does yeah. that work in the writers' room and with with the creative people involved? Well, so yeah, there's a couple of things. I, I if it's a drama, it sort of depends. Is it a serialized show, which is built to episode to episode, the the story and the mystery unfolds and it, it doesn't get resolved in one episode? Mm. Or is it what they say, like an episodic show, like a Law and Order? Each episode, there's one mystery. It gets solved. You move on to the next one. Sure. So there's there's that difference. But even in a show like Law and Order, to your point, you're supposed to create characters that have sort of flaws and quirks and issues that don't get resolved and sort of stay in place for the run of this series you know like if if it's a lawyer and they're a real cranky you know cantankerous annoyed person (laughs) you know and they're always yelling at their own clients that's their character for the show and that doesn't get resolved whereas in a in a novel or a movie traditionally a character has a problem or flaw or an issue and you know, by the end of the book or the movie, that thing gets resolved. Yes, yeah. You know, your your issues get resolved. I mean, it, if you're writing a movie and and it doesn't get resolved, people feel like, oh, that that didn't wrap up. You know. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, and in a series, it's funny. You want to sort of the you want to create issues and problems for your characters that don't get resolved and, <laughs> and keep being problems <laughs> whereas yeah. yeah movies it's so yeah tvs and movies although there's a lot of things that are the same there's that issue is very different that a, a movie structure has these three acts where you set up the problem character tries to solve it it gets very complicated in act two and then in act three it gets solved yeah yeah, yeah. you're done you know unless you're setting up a franchise and then some some little issues or can be continued or there's another case in the next movie, but you know, um, generally speaking, the the main problem or issue in a movie or a book, you know, gets resolved. Sure. Yeah. Unless, yeah. unless, unless it's an art house movie or a real arty book. And then, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if, if it isn't, if it isn't adhering to classic story structure, then who exactly. knows where it's going to go? Yeah. I guess I, yeah, I've, I see this a lot with those kind of 
gentle-ish rom-com things where, you know, there's person A and person B and, like, the audience are just baying for them to get together and they still haven't got together by series two and people are throwing things at them. And it's just, you can see that there's that tension for the writers between, they are, we want the, you know, we want these guys together, but the tension that is created by holding them apart is just worth it just to keep the thing going. Yeah, that's, that's always a tough one in a series. The writers are always... Do do these two characters hook up? How long do you hold it off? And yeah. yeah, that's a <laughs> that's a classic problem in the writers' room. Yep. So one of the other things you've done is, uh, and you mentioned it earlier, is you've worked for an advertising agency. So as a as a person who's interested in writing and story, so what does that experience teach you? I mean, one of the reasons I started enjoying working in advertising and and doing a bit more of it than screenwriting, it, you know, screenwriting you you pitch stories you know movies or tv shows yeah sometimes you sell them oftentimes even if you sell them and get paid to write it it doesn't get produced yeah you know that's yeah. that's the sort of joke in hollywood is ever you know all these screenplays never get produced you you could have a successful screenwriting career and never once have a movie get made but have sold 30 screenplays in your life so in in advertising the cool thing is you know things get produced yes. whether it's a, a social media post or a tv commercial or a piece of branded content, you know, like a, a digital series sponsored by Ikea or whatever, mm, you know, the, mm, these things mm. get sold and produced and put out rather quickly compared to Hollywood, which, you know, can have development of a year or longer. Yeah, or two absolutely. Years. Yeah, yeah. Long time. Yeah. So, you, yeah. So the feedback loop is much quicker. You put it out, you see how people are responding. Um, obviously today people respond to things much more, <laughs> more vocally than they used to with social media. So, <laughs> Yeah, so in advertising, I think you really get to see what people think and you, you get to make the thing and put it out there and, and get a response in a way that doesn't always happen with, with screenwriting. Start to consider what people think a little bit more, maybe. Yeah. What have you learned about how people are motivated and what are the things that motivate people from you, particularly from your work in, in an ad agency? And how can we use these insights as writers to develop compelling characters? Yeah, I was I was thinking about that. I mean, I, I feel like the classic thing is always like, what does a character want? Or, you yeah. know, what's, what's the thing they really need to make them happy? But, you know, I think what's sort of interesting about people is we're, we're super competitive and we're always sort of judging ourselves by what do other people think of us? So in a weird way, a lot of stories are the tension between, well, what do I want or what do I think other people want for me or what what are they going after and how can I beat them at it? So there, there's an interesting and a kind of weird, complex way of thinking about characters where it's not only what do I want, but what is that in relation to other people, you know, and how, how, do, how do characters judge themselves in relation? You're like, you might get what you want and yet still yeah. not be happy because someone else got more. Or, uh, okay. Yeah. Y- you know what I mean? So, yeah, I think there's interesting ways to think about it that's not just the traditional, I want something, I get it, story over. Sure. You sure. know, you might, you might get something and it might not be what you expected it to be, or it might make you less happy or more happy than you thought. So one of the other things that you've done is that you've become quite adept at creating taglines. And yes. I presume thereby... <laughs> packing an awful lot of meaning or, or into an incredibly small number of words. And that's actually a useful skill. It struck me it's a useful skill for any writer. So can you give us a bit of a clue around how you produce an effective and compelling tagline? Yeah, it's a, it's it's an interesting thing because I've, I've actually taught creative writing, 
you know, like sort of short stories and I've sure. taught screenwriting and I, I've never actually taught advertising or copywriting. Um, and I, I imagine, especially with taglines, it, it might be pretty difficult to teach because with longer pieces of content, there's structure and yeah. there's rules and there's yeah. characters. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's things you can teach people. You know, I might not be able to give you an idea for your story, but I can tell you you need a beginning, middle, and end. A, a tagline is such a weird thing. It's just got to be short and to the point and original and unexpected, but also makes sense for what you're trying to do. There's yeah. so much that a good tagline should do in very few words. I mean, if anything, shorter is what I would say. Whatever your tagline is, can you make it shorter? Um, <laughs> <laughs> which um yeah it's so i i would imagine it's probably trickier to teach the art of a tagline than than the art of longer pieces of content mm. um you know it's just sort of like you know it when it pops um, yes. it's, it's sort of like a title it's the same yeah. thing with the title for your you know your book or your movie it's like it's such a short thing that i don't know how you could teach it but when you get a good one you just sort of know it and it feels right it seems to me that it, it kind of like a good tagline captures some inherent truth just in a few words about a character or about the film um, or, you know, a situation. And like, I, thought, I mean, a great example is is your Deadpool tagline, I think, um, which I, which, you know, correct me if I'm right. I think it's like with great power comes great irresponsibility. And that's just I guess that's just capturing something of the guy, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it, it's funny. I, I actually came up with a bunch of versions that were, I, I think I had come up with, with great power comes blah, blah, blah. Yeah, or yeah. With great power comes yada, yada, yada. And then I, I think someone else actually tweaked it to come up with the, the irresponsibility line. Um, <laughs> but uh, You did the heavy lifting on that one. I, I, think. Did, I did the heavy lifting, exactly. Yeah, it's just like you said, it captures the truth about the character because... Obviously, the Deadpool character is completely irresponsible, but it's unexpected because you think it's going to be the traditional with great power comes, you know, the traditional thing. So, yeah, it captures the truth. It's unexpected. It's jarring. It's funny. Yeah. So, uh, like I said, a tagline has to do so many different things. It's it's tricky. <laughs> so let's talk about your book that you've recently released. So you you have released a fantasy adventure novel called The Candy Kingdom Saga. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that book then? Yeah, yeah. So it's uh, it's a middle grade novel for maybe seven to twelve year olds, and the notion is that these kids are playing a sort of a Candy Crush like video game, and they yes. these two friends they become the world champions at it, and it turns out the video game was a recruiting tool because the candy world from the video game is is actually a real world in an alternate dimension. It's not that the video game is real. The video game is just a game. Sure, sure. But there, yeah, so there is a real candy world. And then these two seventh graders get pulled into the candy world where the, just like the video game, there's mm -hmm. a war going on between the, the good guy sweet treats and the bad guy sour powers. And these two, <laughs> you know, human kids have to help the good guys somehow um, save the candy kingdom from, from the bad guys. So that, that's sort of the overall plot. And I, I thought what would be fun was to take the notion of like a sweet, brightly colored candy world mm. that you wouldn't expect to be dangerous and deadly. And so then they get there and they realize that 
it's not all sunshine and, and sugar and sweetness. <laughs> you know, the, the candy characters are getting blown apart and their caramel filling is blur, you know, splattering out. And, uh, and they could die. These two kids could die as well. So yeah, I thought, I thought the contrast between what, what you might expect in a candy world versus, you know, a, a more like Lord of the Rings type of like setting. Hmm. It it reminds me of our comment, our discussion earlier on, kind of Willy Wonka comment with that kind of lots of color, lots of fun, lots of life. But also there's this kind of actually there's a bit of a twist of danger. There's some there's some something a little bit darker going on in that world, isn't there? Oh, yeah. I mean, I I didn't intentionally do it. And then after I after I wrote it and was, you know, someone had asked me like that question, what 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 do you think influenced it? And I thought back to Willy Wonka and I realized, Yeah. yeah, it has this amazing fun weird world where like oh my god you know you go to a candy factory and you can do anything you can float and do all these things and by then you could also explode when you float to the top of the (laughs) top of the room which is like how dark is that in a kid's movie that a kid would float to the top and explode or doesn't another kid like drown in the chocolate river yeah totally they do (laughs) well nearly (laughs) yeah yeah so yeah, yeah. So that notion of a, of a fun, fantastical, like it would be so cool to be in that world, but then also, oh my god, it's kind of dangerous. I don't yeah. know if I quite as much as I thought I would. Yeah. <laughs> so we 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 talked about writers collaborating earlier on, and I understand that your nine year old son actually collaborated with you on this project. So I'm kind of wondering what he brought to the writers' room. What did what what did he bring to? If you were the kind of showrunner, what was he doing for you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I was definitely the showrunner. So our, our writer's room was the bathroom, and uh, <laughs> right, the writer's room convened every night during bath time, and my wife would be yelling at me like, oh, you're working our son too hard. Let him <laughs> let him take a bath in peace. Um, but uh, yeah, I it was, it was just fun and weird and unexpected, because I obviously I've been writing for a long time, and even when I was writing things, like I wrote a Nickelodeon movie yeah. for you know, eight, nine, 10 year olds, but he was like four, five when that, when that came out. So I had never really been writing anything that he would be interested in directly. And, um, the reason I actually started writing a middle grade novel was because I had been reading so many with him. Yeah. And so every night we, we read together. Yeah. And so we read one book in a series and then we just download the next one right away. And so I, I maybe enjoy these middle grade novels as much or, or maybe more than he does. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm super passionate about them. And I, yeah, I just realized I had all these, you know, half finished screenplays and I was like, why can't I write a novel for these, uh, you know, eight to 12 year olds. So, um, so yeah, so he was sort of the reason I even tried to do it. And then once I started writing it, I just started talking to him about it and he would, I didn't intend it to be a collaboration, but he would pitch me ideas. Yeah. And I'd be like, oh, that's cool. Or he actually came up with all the, um, there's sequels. So I'm actually writing the second one right now. But okay. he came up with the notion of the the different worlds that each of the sequel books would take place in. Okay, and cool. yeah, it was just a fun, you know, he's the target audience. Yeah. So you get, yeah. in real time, you get to think like, what what would an eight year old think of this? Well, I have one. Let's, yeah, here's let's one. Here's one already for you to use. Yeah, yeah, he's hard. Exactly, it's great. Yeah. So, um, and, uh, so yep. if you're writing for for kids of that age, I wonder if, if there are things that you have to pay attention to. I mean, I'm just thinking if people are listening to this and they want to write for that sort of age, both in terms of um, the kind of themes 
and issues that you deal with and also language that you use what are the kind of what's this kind of thing that you had to pay attention to with that for this age group yeah i mean i i think the standard staying away from from curses i mean i i'm still even a little bit is hell too much should you say heck instead of hell you know and yeah. dang instead of am stuff okay. like that seems like a, yeah it seems like a fine line but in terms of theme that the thing that maybe intrigued me most about the middle school middle grade novels we were reading was really how dark they could be yeah um, yeah you know we're, we're reading max einstein where she's she's actually a homeless girl fully okay. fully homeless with no family Wow. And then she she gets sucked into this world of spies. Um, some other um, we're reading the uh, middle school, the worst years of my life series, and his, <laughs> his yeah, I don't know if you've ever heard of that one, but James no, Patterson, his it sounds great. Yeah, it's well, I mean, it's just about middle school, but it turns out he has an imaginary friend, but his yeah. brother, his twin brother, died when his twin brother was three. Okay. And he now talks to his twin brother just as an imaginary friend, yeah. um, which is obviously a very dark and emotional thing. Sure, uh, yeah. Some, uh, yeah, some other books we read had absentee parents. And yeah, so I was actually surprised. So it was funny when, when my father read the book, he was like, wow, this is pretty, this is pretty violent. This is pretty, you know, is this too much for kids that age? And I was like, yeah, you haven't read a book in about 40 years for this audience. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah things have changed um yeah so yeah i think i think kids are more i don't know open to it or just more used to to seeing things that are a little edgier than they were sure. like when i was a kid you know so okay so how did you go about developing the characters for your book and perhaps you could start by just telling us what the relationships between your protagonists are whether they're siblings or friends yeah. or whatever's going on there yeah yeah the the two lead characters um landon's the boy cassie's the girl i i thought it would be fun if it was a duo and they were just pretty opposite mm. so cassie sort of rushes into things without thinking and she's very active and you know just she's a skateboarder and she just goes for it Mm. And then realizes, oh, I'm in trouble. What do I do? Whereas, <laughs> yeah, Landon is very neurotic and overthinks everything and has a million questions before they do something. So it's a, I, I thought it would be a fun dynamic to have them mm. together. Mm. And, and they get along. They're, they're, you know, friends, but they approach things very differently, sure. which, I, which I thought would be, give you drama and comedy. That, that was the notion on the human characters. And then the, the candy characters, I was really just trying to imagine like what sort of candy creatures, you know, based on candy that we were familiar with, you know, like the, the knight who trains them in the candy world is a, like a chocolate Easter bunny. Um, (laughs) and I thought, you know, he has like a tit foil, they're wrapped in gold or silver for Easter. I thought that could be like armor, Mm, you know? mm. Um, or I thought it would be funny if there was like a, a gummy bear. I actually made them gummy, cats gummy kittens because my son loves cats but um i thought it would be fun to have these cute little gummy you know bears or cats yeah, that were the yeah. soldiers actual warriors um and then i wanted the main gummy cat claw to have a sidekick and i thought what what could be like a little character that would travel with him and so i thought you know like a chocolate chip or a, a snow cap that's you know a little a little piece of candy that would would be on his shoulder. Yeah. Um, yeah. So a lot of the candy characters were just 
And then, like, the villain is sort of like Jabba the Hutt. He's just this big, gross, oozing thing. But like a, you know, like Hubba Bubba, like bubble gum. He's yeah, just, yeah, yeah. You can't, you can't really <laughs> pin him down because he's kind of squishy and weird. So, yeah, the, the candy characters were probably less about the personality, per se, more starting with actual candy. Yes. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So you've, so you've got the candy and you're it's 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 real candy in the sense of it's it's at least based on on real candy. And you're trying to extrapolate a character out of that. Yes. Sure. Yes. And what yeah. was the name of your and antagonist again? What was your bad guy called? Uh, Tubba Bubba Gum. Tubba Bubba Gum. <laughs> like he's a tub of Bubba Gum. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> now, I'm, I'm looking as we speak here at the cover of the book. Yes. And it's interesting the way you described your two protagonists. And even when you look at the cover, you can, you can see the different personalities in there. So I wondered if you could tell us a little bit. I mean, covers are obviously important. They're really important, I should think, for, for this age group. Yep. How did yep. you... How did you work with your cover designer and how, what did you think, what were the things you were thinking about when you were getting the cover done? Yeah, so the, the cover is interesting. I actually just changed it. So I, I'm not sure if you're looking at the, the new cover has a green background with just the two of them. And there's a big purple hand behind that's them. That's the one I'm looking at, yeah. Okay, that's that's the new cover. The purple okay. hand is tough of bubba gum chasing them. So yeah, yeah. the first cover, yeah, so the first cover was the two of them, the same exact sort of the two of them in those poses but with happier faces and it was a busier cover. There were the side characters. There was like a world of candy behind them. Yeah. And the, everything was very brightly colored, like purple and pink and orange. And the, the, the font for the candy kingdom saga was very kid like. And so anyway, so I released it and I realized that it, it just felt like it was skewing a little too kitty, like yes. more, five yes. or six year old than eight or nine year old sure uh yeah and it also felt like it was skewing too much to the girl side because it was very pink whereas the book is sort of equal there's a boy girl a boy lead and a girl lead yeah and yeah it's it's not a very girly quote girly book i mean it's it's action and you know um which some girls like that but it, it the cover when it was pink and purple just didn't feel representative so yeah, so after having it out there for a while, I went back to the cover artist, um, Kevin Richter. He, mm. he lives in Britain. I found him online. Okay. And um, yeah, and so we just decided how can we make it a little more unisex, a little more equal with a boy and girl. Yes. So we made the, yeah, so we made the two characters bigger. We made the background green instead yeah. of purple. We came up with an edgier font for the Candy Kingdom saga. Yeah. We, we thought having the purple hand would be scary. So we tried to make it a little more also simplified because ebooks live as a thumbnail. There's not much detail when it's small. True, true. You know? Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, and it does. I mean, people listening to this can go and have a look at it. So it's, it, um, I mean, both of the characters in this, the boy and the girl, look like they've got lots of agency and lot. I mean, the girl looks more like up for it and mad for it than the boy does, which I guess reflects the way in which you describe their characters. Yeah, that yeah. was intentional. That she was a little more gung ho, and he's yeah. a little more like, oh, yeah. <laughs> she's she's kind of sk- racing in there with her skateboard and her sword and shield. So that, <laughs> but and the and the boy's looking a little, just a little bit terrified. Actually. Yeah, he's looking behind. She's looking ahead. It's yeah. kind of yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, so I wondered if there's anything else about the writing process that you think is really important that you want to share with us. Yeah, yeah, I would definitely say that writing is rewriting and that it's just yeah sort of long process whether you write a draft and rewrite 
chapters as you go or if you spit it all out and then go back and rewrite however, however you choose to do it um it's just writing is rewriting and i just find that it's not just about getting it out it's about going back and refining it sure. and refining it refining yeah. it. yeah that's one thing and then i think you know related to that is is get listening to getting feedback from people and and listening to it and you don't always have to agree with it or or act on it but at least considering the feedback hmm. uh, is worth it um, because it's going to be read by other people and it's it's not just what you think of it necessarily, you know? Okay. So we're, we're going to wrap up in a moment, but I do want to ask you if you could just tell us how people can find out more about you. Um, and actually, I would just say just on that, um, I've, never, I've never seen a website before where somebody gets their parents to write their biography. <laughs> Which is completely so, crazy, yeah. but you know, unless unless you yeah. didn't really do that, that that seems to be what you've done. You've got your mum and dad to write your the biography <laughs> for your website. Well, I, I'm glad it I'm glad it played. So I I actually wrote it in in their voice. Um, <laughs> so yeah, the website serves partially as my novelist and and screenwriting website, but yeah. also as my advertising and copywriting. So sure. for the biography, which is when people are reading about you for jobs. I just thought it would be funny and original if if it was written by my parents. So you know, it has a very New well, York. Stuck with me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they're like, they're kind of proud of me, but they're like, yeah, he really could have been a doctor, yeah. but oh well, yeah. I guess he's a writer. Um, so yeah, I, I just thought it would be funny if uh, if they had written it, and they they actually thought it was funny too. So oh, well, they, that's uh, good. I mean, it was a very they, parent thing. They're like, well, they wanted their boy to be a, a lawyer or a doctor or something, and he went and yeah. kind of went to Tinseltown yeah. instead. Or exactly. I don't know. But, um, so, what is your <laughs> website? Can you tell us if people want to just look you up and find out more about you? Sure. So it's uh, my name at you know gregmillman.com, G R E G G M is a Mary I L L M A N dot com. And yeah, there's info about the book on the website. There's also a blog that I've been writing in the sure. voice of the Candy Kingdom. So it's actually the Candy Kingdom in the blog is angry at Greg Millman, the author, because in in the books, the the, the Candy Kingdom is recording everything for history. And right. so the, the books are actually just the historical record of what really happened in the Candy Kingdom. And so when the Candy Kingdom finds out that some author, Greg Millman, is claiming he wrote it, he becomes a wanted fugitive that the Candy Kingdom is very unhappy with, that he's claiming credit for everything. So, um, <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> so I'm wanted in the blog. Um, and if people want and, to find out more about the book, where do, where, where do we go to find out about the Candy Kingdom saga then? Yeah, it's available on Amazon. Okay. And, and then also on the website. And, and sure. also, actually, since you've interviewed me, as Greg Millman, you are now an accomplice in the crimes against the Candy Kingdom. So you you may appear wanted in the blog as well. <laughs> I would consider it an honor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Cool. Thank, thank you so okay. much. I appreciate the opportunity. You're very welcome, Greg. That was fun. All right. Thank Cheers. you. I'll talk to you in a bit. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Creative Writers Toolbelt podcast. If you want to find out more about the podcast or me, just go to my website. It's andrewjchamberlain.com. Hold up. 